you have a Bible, why don't you do this? Why don't you open up to Mark, or sorry, Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 with me. And we are going to continue this journey uh, called Discover Praxis. The hope for this, the last couple weeks and the next few weeks, is to bring everybody through our core values and mission and vision as a community. And so if you've missed any of this, this is actually going to be the gateway into membership here at Praxis. So at the end of this, we're gonna open up membership if you wanna become a member here. But anybody that comes into the community and wants to serve or join in, we're always gonna lead them to this particular series, this six or seven week series where you hear the mission, the vision, the values. And last week, we talked about really the biggest core value for us, which is life with God. Everything we do flows out of life with God. And I really encourage you, if you weren't here, go back and listen because we want to correct maybe some, some bad postures when it comes to God. One of those is life for God. You know, sometimes, and I talked very openly last week, that some of us love to do stuff for God, and it sounds great, but the, the central posture that we need to come from at first is life with God. Jesus says to his disciples, the first thing he says to them, his apprentices, is I want you to be with me. And so Praxis Church is designed to open up channels and ways in which all of us, every single individual from the youngest to the oldest, would be in community with God, would be in community with his presence. And so now, now that we've got that settled, one of the things we want to talk about is the things that kind of stem out of that. There's a number of things, now that we've settled that this community is a community that does life with God, there's a bunch of things that now we do and we practice out of that. Now, I got to put a precursor out there. Are we okay with a little bit of repetition? Well, we better be. Okay. <laughs> I hope so. That's all right. Um, the tension, I want to put a disclaimer out. The tension with the next couple of teachings, first of all, is we're going to talk about the core practice of spiritual formation or practice. And I actually had this week to split this into two weeks. So this teaching in particular, this core value, is going to be spread out over two weeks because there was just to be fair for you guys and to be fair to myself, it was just going to be way too long to talk through everything uh, when it comes to spiritual formation. Now, you, if you've been around, you've heard some of this stuff. And I think it's just in this moment in time, at this point in the life of our church, just to revisit it so that everybody sees where we're headed and where we're going. And I can't say, honestly, from the depths of me, how important what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks is. I know that's like the pastor guy thing or the pastor guy. You always, up front, everybody thinks that what they're talking about is important. But I do feel like for us, this idea of spiritual formation is really the thing that got the, the wheels spinning towards the changes in our church and now relaunching as Praxis Church. And so I want you to know you've probably heard some of this, but I think it's really good to revisit it and come back to what this really means for us as a community. A few of you guys know, a couple years ago, our family did a renovation. Oh yeah, anybody done a renovation before? Oh baby. Um, anybody not handy and done a renovation? <gasps> the worst thing ever, but it was great. It was like the greatest worst thing ever. Greatest moment, but worst moment of our life. It was awesome. And many of you guys know we took this uh, little place and opened up the walls and basically redid most of the house from top to bottom. And there's still some work left a couple years later. But one of the things we did is we took walls out to open it up. And as I got into the walls that we were, were removing, I realized that there was this big exhaust pipe in the walls. 
and didn't realize that to remove the walls, because the furnace in the basement was original, like 1980s furnace, late 70s, that old furnaces, the exhaust for them actually went out the wall and out your roof of your house. I had no idea. So we took this wall out and realized we've got to do something. And we realized at that point that we had to actually replace the furnace, which we were going to do. So took the walls out, replaced the furnace, no big pipe going through the wall anymore because there's no more walls. And it all went good. And all I did is in the ceiling, in our rafters, I just cut the piece off and let it hang there because I didn't want to like fix the, the roof or anything and thought this would be a quick fix. And so about a year in, Uh, We noticed and heard one evening, we heard some dripping uh, on a rainy April evening. This was a year ago. And so the dripping was going, and I realized I went up into our our ceiling and into our attic and realized that the drip was coming through where the pipe was from the old furnace. So simple fix, right? You call a company, they come for like 300 bucks, they put the wood over it, they shingle it up, and you're good to go. So I called them, this great company, who I won't mention by name, came, and the guy came out and said, oh, this is super easy. All we have to do is move the chimney out from the ceiling, board it over, put the shingles on, you're as good as gold. And I said, I'm not handy at all, so you just do whatever you want, just fix it. Anybody with me? This is my life. So he wrote down, remove the chimney. And a guy came the next day, and I remember it so, vaguely, uh, so clear because I was in the basement, I was on like this online virtual meeting, and Heather said, the guy is here to quickly fix the leak in the roof. So I went into my meeting, and then I came up like an hour and 15 minutes later and realized something was not right. Because what should have been like a five or 10 minute fix on the ceiling to fix the leak had turned into like an hour and 15 minutes, and it was like banging. I could hear it in the basement. So I came up, Heather's doing daycare, and I said to her, something is like odd here. Like, I feel like I could fix this in a few minutes, and it's been like an hour and a half. And then I noticed, instead of it being over the chimney or where the thing was hanging in, the metal piece from the furnace, I I heard the banging on the other side of the house, and it was like, Hardcore, it was actually over our bedroom. So I ran into our bedroom and like there's a guy on the roof over our bedroom and it's just like he's demolishing something. So I come back down to Heather and I say, there's something wrong, there's something wrong here. And uh, I go outside and I turn the corner and there is a guy from a roofing company dismantling my chimney, my, my brick chimney, my chimney into the back of his truck. Now have you ever had like, moments, anybody, just like create, it was, I tried my best to keep calm, but I like obviously screamed at the guy because he's like dumping my brick chimney into the back of his truck. And so he stops and looks at me and the terror on his face because he knows something is desperately wrong as my chimney now is sitting in the back of his truck. And I'm screaming at him to stop and he's freaking out and then all I could do was like kind of yell at him and I go back into the house. And I, t- I tell Heather like he's dismantled like our chimney, like the real, the real chimney in the back of his truck. And I don't know if you've had these moments where like it turns from terror to hilarity. Anybody? You know, like Heather and I had just had this moment where it was like two minutes of like sweating and like wanting to cry. And then have you ever had a moment where you're laughing so hard you literally have to pull somebody else up off the floor? I could, anybody heard the giggles before? Oh my gosh. We just start like howling. This guy freaking took my chimney, 
put it in the back of his truck. So I come back out and he is just like in terror mode. He's so panicked. He's like in 30 years on the job. I have never done anything like this. I felt like I almost had to talk him down off the roof. And, um, and he comes down and he thinks we're just going to like lose our poop. And we didn't because we're nice people. And all he could say to me was this. He said, well, at least it was sturdy. And I was like, bro, my chimney's in the back of your van. Think of, or back of your truck. You need to maybe think, yeah, okay. And it just got me thinking that moment, how important foundations are. When it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus has a ton to say about foundations. And actually, one of the things we get, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, he's continually talking about the foundation of our lives. You know, one of the things the Gospels talk about the way of Jesus as is a road, the word is hodos, a way in which we walk or we follow Jesus. And I just want to look at a little passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at a lot over the last couple years and just revisit it again in what it's actually calling us to in the reality of the kingdom of God and the foundation of our lives. Because this is the end of Jesus' most famous teaching, most famous sermon, and Jesus is getting a picture for his followers that they will live in the present reality of the rule of God. A guy named Scott McKnight, he puts it like this. He says that this parable that Jesus ends this teaching with is an invitation to imagine a different world and to become different people called to work for the kingdom in the here and now. And so what Jesus is going to do here is he's actually, he's the master teacher, right? And one of the ways, because they didn't have really shiny TVs and cool videos and graphics and different things that catch your attention now, or vi- especially video and things like that, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to contrast two different types of people. And this, in, actually, in the first century, was a way in which a teacher would get somebody's attention. So we've evolved a little bit. It takes a lot. Some of you are already thinking about this afternoon and lunch and you're looking at Facebook or whatever. I get it. But in the first century, the way to really draw out a crowd and be compelling to a crowd is you would, you would actually contrast two different types of groups or people. Now, when you think of it like that, think about Jesus' teachings. What is he always doing? He's always contrasting people and he does this here. It says this, Matthew 7, if you want to read along, verse 24. Jesus says this, Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their own teachers of the law. Now, you know this. If you've been around, you've been on the flannel board in Sunday school, most of you guys that have been around a while know this as the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise and the foolish builders, this parable that Jesus kind of ends with. And here's the thing. For many of us, it just becomes very, very common. We've heard it. Let's move on. 
But a couple years ago, I engaged, obviously, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and I engaged the t- this teaching again, and something stood out that had never really stood out to me before. Think about it, friends. What do both builders experience in the parable? Both builders experience what Jesus would call these words of mine. Now, guys, I know we got lots going on in our brains, but this is actually really crazy. What Jesus is going to do here is he's going to contrast two people that have heard in their minds exactly the same thing that Jesus has taught them. Jesus' teachings go out in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to talk about a few of the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount? We could talk all day. So he gives them instruction to, to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and a city on a hill. He gives instruction to teach and practice the law and prophets as Jesus interprets them. He teaches them not to murder. That's a good thing. And, or to deal actually with the deeper heart of the matter, which is anger. He gives them instruction to not commit adultery and to deal with the heart of the matter, which is lust. We've talked about all these things in the community over the last little while. He talks about instruction not to divorce or to tell the truth at all times or to creatively respond with nonviolence or to love our enemies at all costs or to practice giving to those in need or to practice the daily discipline of prayer or to practice the daily discipline of fasting. And it goes on and he teaches us and gives us instruction to store up our treasure in the kingdom of God in the here and now, not in earthly things. He gives instruction in the same teaching, not to worry, but to trust God in everything, not to judge others from a distance, but instruction to come to God as a good father. And in the end, he gives his followers this instruction that they're to enter the narrow gate, to walk the narrow path, and to bear good fruit, which is the will of God. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, we got this? <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. Both dudes, both builders in the story, this is what I believe, and then there's other context here, but this is what I believe it's pointing to. Both builders, both men in the story that we hear, actually hear exactly the same thing. All of these teachings Actually, one of the common phrases, and you know this if you've been around for a while, one of the common phrases in Matthew chapter 7 is this Greek word poieo, poieo. It's used seven times in 29 verses. And if you don't know, oftentimes what happens is the translators take the same Greek word and they give it different meanings in English. And so sometimes this word poieo, it means to bear fruit or to do And in this particular passage right here, the word poieo actually means to practice, to practice the way and the teachings of Jesus. Now, isn't that haunting a bit? I don't know about for you, but for me, this opens up a huge can of worms because it begins to spur on for us a discussion around transformation. I think a lot of us maybe in this room, especially if you've been around the evangelical world for a while, simply like me for years, thought that transformation comes through two particular things. One, a lot of us think that transformation simply comes from knowing the Bible, especially since the Enlightenment, especially. And uh, I think of the great reformers who put an emphasis on the Bible and really drove the church back in the Reformation, which was beautiful. But a lot of us in our heads now think that transformation, if I just know a lot of the Bible in my head, I'm going to be transformed. 
There's others that maybe you came from more of a charismatic stream of the church where I talk to a lot of people and ultimately a lot of people think that transformation is simply going to come down to one thing and that's an encounter with God. Now I think both of those things are actually really integral in the life of a disciple. Knowing the scriptures is beautiful and having encounters with God is absolutely beautiful. But now as I sit on this side of my own journey and have evaluated this stuff more and more, I'm beginning to realize that those things on their own don't bring transformation. Do you hear what I said? On their own, I'm not sure those two things bring transformation. How do I know? Well, one, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but I went to seminary. And I realized you can know the Bible really well in your head, and that doesn't mean a whole lot. Now, I'll just preface and say my seminary experience was phenomenal. Oh my, and many of you know this that are close. I had the greatest time, and my mind and my heart was expanded, and oh, it was just the most be- one of the most beautiful seasons in my life. It was amazing. But I began to see knowing the Bible just on its own is not going to bring transformation. I also know that encounters with God on their own probably aren't going to bring as much transformation as we think. How do I know that? Well, I can take you back when I was 14 years old to a place in space. It was at a youth camp, and it was authentic and it was real. God did something in a moment. I could take you back to the square inch in which it happened, where I believe God filled me with his spirit for the first time and was a legit encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, it was incredible. And I actually had a number of friends that had the very kind of same experience, it seemed like, on that evening. And it was beautiful, but I, I began to see over time that that experience on its own isn't going to bring transformation. How do I know that? Well, the five or six other people that are with me, they, that on that day, no longer followed Jesus, right? And so we've created some things in our heads uh, in the Western world, and I think there needs to be a little bit of critique around what transformation actually is. And this has been the thing that has led us back to the spiritual practice and spiritual formation. Because in the story, it's haunting Both builders hear exactly the same thing and one puts it into practice and the other doesn't. And so what I think this ultimately leads us to a little bit is just to do a little bit of a critique of North American Christian culture. Because I don't know about you, if you see it or not, but in North America especially, we right now have an obsession with information and teaching. We just do. We love in the West. We lo- think about podcasting and instant media and everything. It is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You go on. We love really good information, and especially in the church. We lo- really, it's become the highest virtue. We love really good teaching. And here's the thing. We live in a beautiful world where technology can be an amazing tool. I was saying to somebody uh, just a, maybe a year ago, I, on my computer in my office, had started a podcast in Apple Podcast because I like long lectures, and some of you think that's boring, and that's okay, but I just love it. And so I started this lecture, and then I had a meeting, so I had to get in my car. So I put it on my phone, and I thought, I'm going to have to go back and search out where the podcast is. I open it up. It's at the exact same spot on my computer where I had stopped it. Like, the spirit of Steve Jobs is all around us. Are you with me? It was amazing. Then that evening, third device. I know, sorry world. Third device in my bed. This is not good advice for you, but in my bed, I had my iPad, and I'm like, I need to finish this lecture. Open it up. Same spot that I was on my phone and my computer. Like, this is, 
This world is amazing. I think of the people in our lives. I think of my brother who lives in Atlanta where his sweet little, my beautiful little niece can run around on FaceTime and it's kind of like she's in the room. It's amazing. The other side, though, is that you and I are on information overload. So you have more in your pocket right now than a person did 50 years ago, the more information in your pocket than they had over a lifetime. Everything is at our fingertip. And there's been, I think, a shift over the last number of years through technology in the North American church where teaching has become everything. We obsess over it in a really deep way. Now, this has spawned into the evolution of things like the celebrity pastor, and there's always been celebrity pastors, but now with internet sermons, and I'm not saying this disparagingly at all because I have friends in these environments and it's amazing, but some churches now even have a guy who's hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, and he is put on a projection screen to do the teaching in the public gathering. I'm not against it. I have friends there. I think it's beautiful and wonderful. I think it works even for some communities. I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out that the highest value at times has become the reality that the teaching has to be good, and those are our methods to do that. You with me? Now, I need to pause and remind you, because some of you are thinking, wait, aren't you, that, aren't you the guy that does a lot of your time on this stuff? Absolutely. I'm for good communications and communic- communicating clearly and well. First of all, I'm for being informed. Uh, many of you guys know I, I am well-read. I think reading and information is a beautiful thing. Secondly, I think we should be the most creative people on the planet. The Jesus movement should be creative and engaging because we have the greatest news and message on the planet. Is anybody with me? This good news of the kingdom of God needs to be spread to the corners of the earth in fresh and creative ways. I I give my life to that. But I do think the obsession over teaching just needs to be critiqued because Jesus tells a story about two guys who hear the same thing and one is wise and the other is foolish. We need to think deeply about this. So think about it with me for a second. The greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth, Jesus of Nazareth, knew that his teachings on their own would not bring transformation. It's quiet. This is the journey I've been on, and I think this is the journey that our church has been on, is getting to the the depths of the kingdom, is that the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth knew that his teaching on their own wouldn't bring transformation, on their own. How do we know? He tells a story of two builders, both here and one practices. And in the church, our obsession with information and teaching, we think at times that good teaching on its own is transformational, and it's, I'm just here to say it's not. You can be Billy Graham, you can be Rob Bell, you can be Stephen Furtick, you fill in the blank with whoever your favorite is, but without teaching and information leading to practice, it is just information. And we've been seeing this, especially culturally in the church. Please hear me. I'm not arguing for anything less than good teaching. I will give my life to creativity and information and doing this really appropriately in our cultural moment. I'm not arguing for anything less, but what I'm arguing for is a heck of a lot more. And one of the things, the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth, the thing that he believed is that his disciples would hear it. So we don't need anything less than that, but we've actually got to go out and we've got to practice this together. Are you hanging with me, brothers and sisters? You with me? 
Now, this then creates a bit of a paradigm and I believe a deep paradigm shift for the idea of transformation. Again, I don't think it's just knowledge of the Bible that's gonna change us, though the Bible is beautiful and inspired and wonderful. And I don't think it's just gonna be encounters with God, though I think encountering the Spirit is beautiful. I do think it's around this idea of practice as a community. There's a guy, his name's James K.A. Smith. Many, I run into people all the time that have read his book, You Are What You Love. It was a big book over the last couple years that he wrote. And it's all about uh, habits and practices and trans- transformation through our practices. And he tells this story of how his wife, and I think it was his wife or his daughter, was trying to get him to eat clean. And so he's a professor. And so for months, his go-to book that he would carry around with him was a book by Wendell Berry on clean eating. And so he would take it with him. And if he ever got stuck somewhere, he'd just pull out the highlighter and he'd read this book on clean eating. And so he tells a story in his book, You Are What You Love, that one day he was sitting and he's just devouring this book, highlighting everything, underlining all the really good stuff that Wendell Berry has to say about clean eating. And then it just was like an epiphany. It, it, it turned on him. He realized that as he's devouring this book on transformation and change when it comes to eating, that he's sitting in Costco and he's eating a hot dog. And he just talks about this moment, how it was like, and how many of us do, and by the way, Costco hot dogs, are they not the greatest thing ever? Come on, they're pretty, that's a pretty hard habit to break. And by the way, if you want to feed a family for like 12 bucks, like say a family of six or something, you can do it. It's good. <laughs> don't judge me. I know some of you are judging. Don't judge me. But isn't, don't, don't we do this? Like we're now uh, in February and it's February 17th. And many of us just six weeks ago put some things on a whiteboard or in a diary or in a journal, you know, words that we thought would bring transformation. And we, and we do this. I do this all the time with exercise or I think, you know, if I just read a book on, you know, being fit in your late 30s as a male, right, that it's just going to totally change my life. And then you realize that information is beautiful, but the world that we live in is not just predicated by information, there's something deeper. And Smith would say, and actually this is in two parts, so we're gonna really look at Smith's work next time, two weeks from now when we're together. We're gonna take some time and look at his work on transformation because he says this, there's a difference between knowing about something and actually doing it, but there's an even greater difference between doing something and actually wanting to do it. You hear what I said? There's a difference between knowing something and doing it, there's, he would say that the habits in our lives, it actually changes what we do and what we actually want to do. As he would suggest that through habits and spiritual disciplines, we actually need to reorient our lives and our tastes to love it. That through counterformation, through practice and liturgy, the things that we practice actually, those are actually the things that change us at a deep, deep level. And we're going to look more at what he has to say about this because I think it's, it's true that it actually takes habits, you know, for some of us. And it's about our loves. He talks about Augustine and how Augustine way back, or Augustine as you know him, maybe a church father, talked about how we're not just thinkers, but we're lovers. And how do we reorient our loves in the way of the kingdom to actually love to do what Jesus did, right? So let's be honest. This is why some of us, we, and I'm talking about myself, you can watch 10 hours of Netflix, no problem, but then to read your Bible or pray, it's like, 
oh, right? 10 minutes in, I'm distracted. Smith would say it's because you love one thing and you, you don't love the other. And how do we love? How do we step into the way of Jesus and love the things that he loves and practice the things that he practices? Are you with me? And so we know this. I mean, this epiphany for me has just the lights on my dashboard, my spiritual dashboard have been blinking the last couple of years because I have three barbaric sons. <laughs> They're amazing who play hockey, and many of you guys know I played a ton of hockey over my life and competitive hockey, and so now they're in this world, and I'm in this world where I'm at the rink, and it just dawned on me. You know what I didn't do for them with hockey? I didn't give them a book. I didn't give them a book and say, here, here you, you, wanna, you wanna play hockey really well, you should read this from front to cover. Now, have they read books on hockey? Absolutely. And I didn't just play them a YouTube video though they watch a lot of Austin Matthews and his goals and that, that kind of stuff on YouTube. No, it was way deeper than that. It was now as I sit and I watch a, five, a three-year-old and a six-year-old carve it up and skate and turn and work on their edges and work on their stick handling. It just, it's dawned on me that, man, in the church, we just think information is going to change us, but everywhere else, and some of you guys coach, so you know this, it's the little incremental things every day that we practice that actually transforms us. And so as I watch these kids grow, I realize it's the things, it's not less information. They have people telling them information, and we don't need anything less than really good information, but it's the daily practice of these rhythms in their lives that actually change them. You know, I think with Ava, I, didn't, I don't tell her just to memorize what I say, right? So go clean your room, right? No parent would get away with just, oh, just, you know, go ahead and memorize it. What do you want as a parent when you say go clean your room? Come on, somebody. You want them to actually do it. And I think it's the same with Jesus. And so here's the thing. Wisdom. Wisdom is such an interesting thing. Because here in this moment, in this text... Both builders hear what Jesus says, yet one practices, and Jesus actually calls the one who practices wise, and the one who hears but doesn't do it, what does he call him? It's foolish. It's as simple as that. Those who are, you know, there's a pursuit of wisdom, and there's something beautiful about that, and I have been just on this journey. I want to be wise too, but it's as simple as doing what Jesus says. Hear these words of mine, and then Jesus says, you put them in to practice. And then this is actually why, and we'll talk about this in the next teaching, why I think we need a better theology of aging. For some reason, for a lot of young Christians, you know, everything needs to be young and hip and cool. And we're a younger community too. But my goodness, I hope and believe and pray that as we grow in the ways of the kingdom and as we practice that 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years down the road, that wisdom would be embodied in our lives because we're practicing the way. And there's, there's part of me that, I, there, you know, in all of our love for youthfulness and beauty and all that in culture today, there's part of me that can't wait, you know, I hope it goes a little slow, but can't wait to grow into that. And I can't wait for the day where Heather and I get to come and somebody else is taking this thing. Hopefully he'll let us still be around in 20 or 30 years or whatever. But we get to be on the door and we kind of get to be these people that have grown into wisdom because we've practiced the way together. And my hope is that Jesus would lead us into this as a community. This has been so deep and rich for, for me that transformation isn't just like these shock waves from God. It's the little habits and the little things I do and you do day in and day out. 
So I was reading a book by a guy named Mark Scandrett, and he says this, and if you know, this really shaped us in the calendar year of 2018, before we launched out as practice. He says this, he says, so many of us want to live in the way of Jesus, pursuing a life that is deeply soulful, connected to our real needs, and good news to our world. I would say, I know most of the people in this room, all of us want this. All of us deeply want this. But he says this, yet, too often our methods of spiritual formation are individualistic, information-driven, and disconnected from the details of everyday life. We simply are not experiencing the kind of transformation that is the historically expected result of the Christ phenomenon. If Jesus of Nazareth demonstrated and taught a revolutionary way of love that is actually possible, alive with healing and hope, then we need a path for experiencing that revolution in the details of our daily lives. Simply put, I believe we need to recover a sense of immediacy and action in our spiritual lives. And then this is what he says. Please stay with me. He says this. Perhaps what we need is a path for discipleship in the church that is more like a karate, karate studio than a college lecture hall. Maybe our path for discipleship needs to look more like a karate dojo studio than it does a college lecture hall. Now, I'm not a karate guy. Maybe some of you are. All I know is that karate people, they get in the dojo and they put their theory into practice and they work it out and they practice and the little habits, the little daily habits of what they do begin to culminate into this life where you actually work out how you live as far as doing karate. And I think it's a beautiful picture for us that sometimes we like to get dragged into good ideas, but good ideas are only good ideas if they're practiced. Bonhoeffer put it like this, 20th century theologian, beautiful. He said this, he said, Jesus knows only one possibility, simply go and obey. Do not interpret or apply, but do it and obey. This is the only way Jesus' world is really heard. But again, doing something is not to be understood as an ideal possibility. Instead, we are simply to begin acting. And so one of the things I hope for us as a community is that every time we hear the scripture, so you gather in communities and you're opening up the Bible, you're doing book studies, whatever you're doing, and you're coming around the scripture in the way of Jesus, every time we come to Jesus' teachings and to what the scriptures lead us to, we should be asking this question, and it's this. You ready? Every time we hear, you hear something on a Sunday morning, you should be asking this question, how can I practice this? How, when, when stuff comes out of my mouth or whoever gets up here and leads us and teaches us, The question should be, how can I practice this? This is what it should lead us to. Not just how can I hear this really well. Hearing well is beautiful. But how can I practice this? Now, if you're a millennial, and I'm a millennial as well, We've kind of been ragged on. Can I get an amen? A little, just a little bit. You know, there's been a cultural tip here in the last number of years. And some of it is rightfully so. Um, I get it, the commitment issues. I get some of the things that people point to. But if you are somebody who's younger, there's actually been some new research done, done. And this is actually really good news for us. Because what Jesus is proposing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is actually a way in which most millennials are wired. So if you know anything about the brain, I don't know if you can throw up a picture of the brain, but the left side of our brains is really the analytical thinking side of us, right? 
And the problem is, is that the Enlightenment, for many, and in many ways, it shaped a way of thinking that was purely analytical. So for many years, the church has embodied this idea of analytical thinking. But the issue, and there's a guy named Dr. John Seal, he talks a little bit about millennials in his book, and he talks about how there's these, the changing uh, perception and the changing way for most millennials is they're intuitive thinkers primarily. And when you think of intuitive thinkers, intuitive thinkers are people that want to practice, are hands-on, that want to do stuff. And so what's happening is millennials, for the most part, research would show, are absolutely booking it out of the church because left-brain analytical thinking has been the primary way. And he, Dr. John Seal actually connects these two things. Basically, he sees, listen, millennials are leaving because of left brain analytical thinking and the focus on that, but he believes that there's actually hope for the future of the church and for millennials because of what Jesus said and how it connects to this intuitive way of life. Jesus gives us a way in which we actually practice this stuff. And so as many young people decide to leave the church, I think one of the things we have to think through is how do we create these avenues for people who are intuitive thinkers to join in on the mission of God and practice the way of Jesus. The problem is most pastors, including myself, are analytical thinkers, but stats would say very few of you in this room are actually like this. You're more intuitive. And I just think, do you read what we read today? Jesus is all about us taking on his yoke, taking on his teaching. And my question would be, maybe a lot of people my age and your age are leaving the church because they're leaving a faith that they've never practiced. It's just been a bunch of information. On a Sunday, you go home. But maybe if we could create these spaces of intuitiveness where we actually get to practice this together, maybe that would be the changing thing to actually see the kingdom come to bear in our city. And so I don't know where you land on this, but I know where Jesus is calling us to, and it's a deep way of practice. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has this long sermon of all the stuff that we just listed. Sex, power, money, fasting, um, prayer, all of these things that he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, how to deal with each other in lawsuits, all sorts of crazy stuff. And then, it's funny, he just ends the sermon with a crash he ends the sermon with a crash. This is what it says, verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew it and beat it against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Michael Wilkins says this, that Jesus challenges his disciples to examine themselves carefully so that they do not deceive themselves about the authenticity of their commitment to him. He challenges the crowds to take up his invitation to the kind of kingdom of heaven because their choice, either for or against him, has eternal consequences. Jesus ends this sermon with a crash because he ultimately wants us to feel the weight of the eternal consequences of us doing what he says. Jesus ends the sermon with a crash because he wants to us to feel it at a visceral level that there are consequences if we do not practice what he says. It should be clear in front of us that a life that's wise practices this stuff. But also looking to your life long term, I hope all of us in this room don't want our lives to crash like it did for the man who heard everything but didn't put it into practice. 
you know, I don't want to scare, you know, there's no scare tactics or anything, but sometimes I think we don't do a great job at times because we have so much in our moment here. Like I'm not scrambling for my next meal for my kids and, you know, I have a pretty great life that, and I know many of us are in the same spot where you're not thinking a whole lot about eternity and yet this is the way in which Jesus actually connects it. He connects practice to flourishing and hearing and not practicing to destruction. That's, that's crazy. And so this has led us into a life where we believe spiritual formation is everything. And I think we need to think about the eternal consequences of what Jesus has to, says here, has to say here. On April 23rd of last year, it was a Monday, and I had taken the day off because uh, there was still renovation stuff kind of creeping up on us. And so many of you guys know Heather's dad. He's amazing, and he comes down and will help and we'll work together. And uh, on that morning, um, we were working away. And so I turned my phone off because it was like, okay, we're going to get this done. And Heather, it was like disaster in our house. She broke her phone the day before, actually at church here. It fell, so it was at Apple. We took it the first thing in the morning. And so we had no phones on at our house, and we were just kind of working away. Heather was working, and I was uh, doing some stuff around the house. And um, my son, Judah, was in a brand new school with his brother and sister. And uh, of any of the three kids, he was probably the one that probably had the hardest time with the transition. Going to a school is a bit of a, an experience, a new school. And he's a little bit of an emotional kid. He's a great kid. And so he had really connected with this teacher at a school named Miss Mashenko. And she was like his light. New kid in school. They were like buddies. He just loved her with everything. Um, that he had. And it really, she was the reason why he was able to, tra- I think, transition to that school so well. So on the 23rd, I'm just working away, and all of a sudden, I hear a scream like from downstairs, and Heather says to me, she screams at us, Miss Mashenko has died. Miss Mashenko has, like on the weekend, had died. And so, my mind, like I'm freaking, obviously, it was crazy. Our phones are off, and they were just about to tell the kids. So I hop in the car, and I'm driving quickly to the school, making sure, you know, that I catch him before he hears this news from somebody other than me. You know what I'm saying? This would be bad news. And I also got thinking that, you know, that morning, it's so funny, Miss Mishenko was so studious and really in order. So every morning, it was like mandatory that all the writing of the books that we had read had to go into the log and everything was in order. And I remember on that Monday morning, it was really busy and we were freaking out uh, because we had church and school, or church and stuff on the weekend. And so we woke up on the Monday and on the way out, I said, Judah, we didn't get your log filled out. Please tell Miss Mishenko that when you see her this morning that we'll get it filled out and all up in order uh, for this week. And so as I'm driving, I'm thinking that moment and I go into this place and I pick up this kid and bring him home and we tell him all that's happened and that Miss Mishenko has passed away and he's just a wreck and you know it's interesting in that moment you know what didn't seem to matter in that moment the reading log right it just like we that morning was so like chaotic and we're I was so worried the reading log didn't get filled out you know You know what, in the end, it didn't really matter? The reading log. Because death, death kind of does something to us to realign and reorient our priorities. 
And I don't think that there's a mistake that, I don't think this is a mistake that Jesus ends with a great crash because he wants all of his hearers, all of his apprentices to get their lives in order. He wants to draw them into a life of discipleship and reorient their lives around him in what will matter long term. And so that, this is why this, this teaching is, it, it's, it's about life. It's about future. It's about the age to come. And ultimately, one of the things we've been drawn into as a spiritual practice is we, the, life is on the line with this. As a community, and as I hear people talk all the time, I can't tell you how many people in the last couple years have come to me and said, I really want to change. I really, people come in all the time, I really want to change. And I think, oh yeah, let's do this. But it's not what you think. It's not just information in your head. It's not just these, these encounters that we think will change our lives forever. It's the slow walk in a direction, in the right direction, and Jesus believes it's taking his teaching and practicing them. And there are, there are eternal consequences for us. And so as we come to the tables and as we eat, it's crackers and juice. But as we lean in to the bread and the wine, it's not wine, it's grape juice, okay? We'll call it wine because this is what the church has always done. Sorry. Um, I want us to lean into the reality the consequences, the, the, the future for us of what it means to actually step into the kingdom of God and follow Jesus with everything. Next week, we'll talk about the practicals of this. We'll talk about formation more and habits and how both what we do in this room on Sundays and, and collectively as a community, our corporate practices, how they shape us, and then we're gonna take a few minutes as well and talk about how the disciplines, the daily disciplines, are actually the things that bring transformation. But if anything leads Praxis Church, I believe it's this, spiritual formation and practice. We're a community that practices the way of Jesus together. And my, my prayer is, is that we grow in this as a community. God would continue to take us deeper and develop us more into people who are actually transformed. That we could read this years from now and go, oh yeah, yeah. I am growing in wisdom because I'm taking what Jesus says. And maybe for some of us, it's just a realignment like me who's a more analytical thinker and who loves information. I love podcasting. Anybody, I just love it. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But maybe for some of us in this room, this is just a little nudge in the story of our church, but more importantly in the story of your life to follow Jesus by practicing. Nothing less than good information, but taking that information and practicing it.